Hey, 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 closet busters and bold move makers. It is time once again for Life Uncloset. So I want you to gather around because it is time once again to kick down those closet doors of your life. We're here to escape our BS, explore our fears, and elevate our self-expression. I'm your host, Rick Clemens. I'm the bold move expert and that coming out guy who's going to take you to the party, the pulpit, the wake, and back to the party of living your life uncloset. So come on along with me and grab hold of yourself and get ready to step out, step up, and step into facing your fears, making your bold moves, and living life without apologies. Now let's get to the show. Hey, 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 Life Uncloseted family. It is time once again for Life Uncloseted, the podcast where we talk about all those different kinds of closets that we all come out of, but we always come back to our core of talking about the LGBTQ experience. And today I am very excited to have a conversation with someone that I've gotten to know really well. And I have to say, I believe this is the first guest that I may have interviewed who was born in Saigon, who has made amazing steps to be recognized by so many people in the LGBTQ world of the Asian descent. And I'm so proud to have gotten to know her and she's really ready to share her story today because it's been an amazing journey and she has thrived through so much. And now, like many of us in the LGBTQ community, has turned this into her life vocation of really wanting to make a difference in the world, helping people with the diversity and inclusion aspects of life. She's been <clears throat> part of some really big initiatives, done some stuff with the White House here in the U.S. as well as with GLAAD. And I just felt like this would be a great conversation as we're stepping in to 2021 because everybody has a right to be who they are. And every person, regardless of the color of their skin, their sexual orientation, deserves to be recognized for who they are on the planet. And I just felt like my guest, Amazon Letty, would be so, so, so good. <clears throat> so I want to just welcome you to my podcast after all these weeks we've been getting here so I'm happy to have you here I'm so great to be on your podcast Rick thank you for having me yeah so we we have gotten to know each other through another program where I coach and I've been coaching Amazon through her like journey to become even more of a speaker you're already doing amazing stuff as a speaker but she's really trying to up her game and then as things started to unfold and I started to, you know, hear your story. I just felt like this was a super, super good space to bring you into. So um, let's just start with something that we'll get to your story. But I just feel like at, in this day and age, the marginalized communities, not only LGBTQ, but there is a marginalization that happens in the LGBTQ Asian space that I don't know a lot of people understand. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would. Absolutely. And I think, you know, when we think of this marginalization, it happens through the broader Asian community of mm -hmm. our invisibleness as a community and the erasure of who we are. And that's been perpetrated by the stereotypes in the media. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And as someone who is part of that Asian community, <clears throat> when you say you feel like you're being really, you're not seen. <laughs> it's, 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 it's such an interesting, I mean, I, I, I get it because I I'm around 
it a lot. I have a lot of friends who are in the Asian world, whether it's, you know, Vietnamese, Chinese, you know, whatever it might be. Um, but there's almost like this interesting space of you just in the world's eyes, you exist from the food that everybody likes. That's about it. Yes. So, yeah. So when you feel like you're not seen, give me, give, give the listeners some insight into this, because I think it's a huge conversation that sure. we need to have. You know, we're the only community, as soon as I'm born, I'm born into the invisible model minority race. That's my stereotype. So mm. that already sets the tone of who I am and why I'm not seen within the community and then how I'm pitted against other communities. And then that's perpetrated by the media. You know, when you ever see a commercial on TV, where you see a safe role, if that's like a doctor or a journalist or someone mm. in who's kind of in a safe role right. that's non-threatening, it will always be an Asian person. And then the stereotype between what it is to be an Asian woman compared to an Asian man and how Asian men are con constantly you know, desexualized and demasculated. And then Asian women are you know, geisha-like Right. Pass passive. And then how that feeds into the LGBTQ community of how we're just made <clears throat> like objects, exotic mm -hmm. objects of desire that are seen but not heard. Yeah. It's it's so interesting. And I know that a lot of people and I'm going to just I'm going to operate from the white male privilege because even even as a gay man, I realize I have some white male privilege just because I'm white and most people wouldn't know I was gay unless I kind of tell them that I'm gay. But um, it's so interesting to watch this in communities because how Asian people in general get <laughs> positioned is they're very quiet. They're very demure. They don't have a voice even within their own communities, it's like the, the males in the Asian community are the ones with the voice and, and the mm -hmm. women are the demure, don't say anything. And yet we just embrace that. Okay. That's the way it is. But yet that's such an assumption that shouldn't be made. And then when I take it to the step of being a gay man and watching gay men in my own community, even on the gay men's hookup apps, the first thing I see so often is, no Asians. Mm. And it's just like, it's the same thing with no blacks, but it's just like, this is such an interesting space. And I know we all have our own preferences, what we're attracted to, but the calling out of, Oh no, this is what do you expect an Asian person to be like, or this is what, you know, I, I don't prefer that. It's got to be constantly like just a jab, a jab, a jab to be out there in the world this way. It is because many people understand who we are as people from the media. So mm -hmm. if it's constantly perpetrated that Asian women are geisha-like, passive, we don't say anything. When it comes to the dating world, that's the image of what people think of us. Right. It works really well in the straight world mm -hmm. because men see that as exotic of having a you know geisha-like, passive woman but it doesn't necessarily work so well in the queer world right. you know and it works in the opposite for asian men because in the straight world they're so desexualized they're never the center of attention of masculinity so they're never seen as 
the one that women would want to desire. But in the gay world, because they're demasculinated, because they're seen as more effeminate, you know, they seem to be more exotic. But then there's that certain stereotype of then the older white man and the very young Asian man. And when I speak to my Asian male friends who are professionals, who are very highly successful, who are over 35, they don't get any likes on the dating app Mm -hmm. because no one wants a successful professional Asian man over 35 because it doesn't fit the stereotype of what they're looking for. And and it's so interesting to watch that unfold because in any other, well, yes, I'm going to make a kind of a assumption here in any other race, you're not going to see that. I know there's guys that are like, well, I wouldn't do this with a black man either, but I don't see that as much. I see it more in, if I'm going to have an Asian boyfriend, he fits this stereotype, which is just ludicrous. Yet Mm. I can see why certain guys are like, this is what has to fit my stereotype. But are you doing it because the stereotype of, I want the submissive kind of more, you know, genteel, you know, so if I'm not going to date a woman, I want this in a man. And for some people, that's what they want. You know, they want the guy who's more effeminate and all this, but to make that leap and that assumption that this is what all Asian men should show up like in the gay world to me is just such a disservice because there's such beautiful men as beings in the gay world that are Asian that don't fit that stereotype whatsoever. And then there are those that do and great. Then they, that's just who they are. But that's the thing that I think is missing is we as a humanity sometimes put these stereotypes on all of us, especially us in the LGBTQ community. And they assume that this is just, okay, to be LGBTQ, this is how you show up in the world. Then you take it to this layer that we're talking about and suddenly it's a whole nother ball game. So as a female person of the, in the LGBTQ world, is there the same thing that comes across? I mean, you've done, <clears throat> for those of you who don't know, which we're kind of getting to this, I mean, you're an athlete, you're a competitive athlete. Is there suddenly some assumptions now that, whoa, she's this Vietnamese person and look at her go. Do you get those kind of assumptions too? Like she should not fit that mold. It's, it's really interesting because in the queer world, you know, no one, you know, it's like when you show up, no one knows who you are. They right. just see you as an Asian person. Right. So whatever that stereotype is of you, and being Asian, then that fits that stereotype until obviously they start speaking to me. And yes, I've had this very unique journey being a competitive bodybuilder. You know, I totally turned being what it is to be an Asian woman on its heads. Right. Um, And that specifically worked much better because obviously, you know, when I'm competing as an athlete, no one knows I'm a queer athlete. So it, it, it was a very interesting observation particularly in the straight world but the thing is with Asian women we have two stereotypes that you know particularly men find very attractive so they always kind of win so we're either the passive geisha woman or we're the dominatrix Mm, so if they find that you're not the, the the geisha you know passive woman then they swing you towards 
the dominatrix. And so I kind of was ended up kind of swinging towards that because I'm athletic and I'm kind of an alpha female. I'm very mm-hmm. co- confident. Um, but in the queer Asian woman's world, it, you know, the thing with being Asian in the LGBTQ community is that we're a sub community and we've always kind of sat on the outer sphere of the community because there's not a space for us we're always Mm -hmm. trying to find a space that we fit into and when we walk into an lgbtq space usually we're one of one or one of very very few few, Hmm. which becomes a difficulty because when you then if you want to break it down further and when you look into the dating world it's like well how many people have grown up with us if this is the, the first time that people see us we're just like one of one Mm -hmm. in a room of 500 people oh yeah Uh, so it it, there's a difficulty in terms of then us navigating those spaces and finding spaces to fit in because when we talk about different spaces you know the black community really do have their own space and you can go to black queer clubs Mm -hmm. latinx community have their spaces and then obviously the white community dominate all of those spaces but then asian people we have to try and find a space within those spaces and, and kind of navigate those spaces and at the same time break down the stereotypes of what people think mm-hmm. of us along the way. It's a, it's a lot of work. <laughs> I'm sure it is. Well, you know, it's interesting as you were talking through that, I started thinking about the last, <clears throat> the last time my husband and I went on an all-gay cruise, which has been quite many years ago, but... Um, I would say, I mean, we were on a ship that was probably 2,800 people on board and it was all mostly men. I would say that less than, I'm going to guess less than a hundred and probably even maybe less than 50 of the guys on board were Asian. Mm. So that just kind of, it's kind of a good slice of like what you see, you know, and even those numbers might be a little high because it's a concentrated space of, you know, vacation and all this sort of stuff. But I know as I've, you know, even as I did the intro today, I was thinking, you know what? I actually believe that Amazon is the first Vietnamese person who's been on this podcast. There is one other person. I can't remember what her descent was. She's albino and she's from Australia, but I know there's some, there's an Asian Pacific background in her, in her DNA. And you don't see it much. You know, and, and it is, I believe, because you, your communities are, you're just not able, so to speak, to like set up shop, so to speak, in the world. You, you set up shop for, your, like I said, your cultures and your food and all this, but to be Asian and queer, I don't know that there's actually a lot of space here. I mean, I know there's a couple of spaces, but it's not as dominant as everywhere else. No, because also we're challenged by our culture that, Mm -hmm. you know, we're immigrants as well. I think a really good example, and there's no kind of gay theme that I know of, is the new Netflix um, reality TV show, Bling um, Empire, Mm. about very, very, you know, billionaire Asian people. But what I found very interesting about that is that when you strip away their richness, there's a tie to their culture that happens even in adulthood where, you know, a man, he's a surgeon and he's still worrying about what his parents 
think and still having to ask them for permission Mm -hmm. and that shame and failure carries us all the way into adulthood which then makes it very difficult to be who we are and then thinking of creating those spaces where we can be who we are becomes very difficult yeah but even in the even in this world and even though i love 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 this movie it's one of my favorite movies even crazy rich asians was just loaded with all the stereotypes you know every step of the way and it was a it was so much fun i mean it's still just i can watch that movie it's one of the few movies i can watch over and over again and still just laugh and enjoy and have fun and i love the storyline but when i think through that it's like every every stereotype was built into that movie you know and and i know we've seen that in our own world with lgbtq movies you know there's always that that culture or that stereotype so coming from where you've come from i mean you've done a lot of stuff you know you've been you know from the orphanage you've been homeless you've been bullied all these different things how do you from your perspective feel that we can start to make the shift where this asian presence in a the world number one but b especially in our own lgbtq community can be elevated for good for everyone storytelling is a big part of it and the lgbtq media has to get on board as well because people need to hear our everyday stories and, you know, when, the, when we have, you know, Pride Month, when we have all these LGBTQ awards, we need to be elevated as community leaders as well. And we need to be, you know, brought to the table. I mean, I think, you know, Crazy Rich Asians really helped the mm-hmm. Asian community because yep. it has levitated us yep. into the forefront. I mean, you do see now more Asian main role characters and more mm-hmm. men asian men we you know we are now seeing more asian queer characters i mean when you think of black lightning you right. have the first asian queer superhero in love with the main character who happens to be the first you know black lesbian superhero and they're kind of everyday characters there's no specific stereotype right, right. about them but we need to come into your homes in difference ways mm-hmm. and well it's, it's almost like like where how queer as folk kind of entered the world and started to like it did show the good the bad the ugly so to speak of our community and i remember the first time i heard somebody say that the good the bad the ugly and i thought well no it showed our community just like every day it shows the heterosexual community so why why call it the good, the bad, the ugly? And I think what you're driving towards here, Amazon, is why can't we just show the LGBTQ Asian culture as the LGBTQ Asian culture? It's just another facet of what's out there. It doesn't have to be so marginalized and stereotyped. Mm. And I think as well, you know, this then comes down to diversity inclusion behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Who are the decision makers when they're, you know, making films, TV shows, writing shows. So many times I watch TV shows where they're queer characters, but they're all white characters or it's whites and black. And I think, but don't, and I think to myself with the writers, don't Asian people exist in your Mm -hmm. world? Yes, exactly. (laughs) Can can you not have everyday characters where there's like an Asian, like just an Asian person who happens to be from the LGBTQ community that's not a stereotype? 
Right. And, and that's the thing is you use the terminology brought to the table. I think that's a really good way to talk about this. It's like, who gets invited to the table in my own community here? And those of you who've listened, you've probably heard me say this before, but there's Cal Poly University, great university, one of the best ones in, in the state of California, but it's very white, like very white. And they struggle. They struggle hugely with this diversity inclusion piece. But the problem is, is when students come on campus to do the tours and everything, and I, I've done stuff over there and I've been on campus when, you know, way they were doing this stuff pre-COVID. And, you know, they're, they've got students walking around of Hispanic culture, Black culture, Asian culture. It's all great, but they don't see anybody that looks like them. So why would they want to come to school there? So it's this interesting balance of bringing the two worlds together. And I don't know the exact number. I know the, I know the number on the black front over at the campus because I, I just happened to be working with somebody in their pride center and he spouted off the number. But when there's 27,000 students and 190 of them were black, you can tell where the problem lies. Now I know there's probably equal, if not probably a little bit higher on the, Asian front, and I don't want this to sound <laughs> stereotypical, but I'm going to go there because it's very much an engineering science school. So there's going to be a higher probability because a lot of Asian people do enter into those segments. But that's the problem too. Don't just have people here because that fits. I think there could be so much more happening. And we're just talking college university. And I know you do a lot of stuff in business. And I want to touch on that too. But if we keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, nothing's going to change. No, There's we're still no... getting the same results because when you exactly. look at Hollywood leading roles, Asian people still only make up 1%. Mm -hmm. And, you know, mm -hmm. when organizations like GLAAD come out with their reports of yep. in the past year, so many LGBTQ characters, we've had this and that, but Asian people, we're just moving an inch yeah. if, if that's... Yeah. every time and then when we get on a really good show like black lightning then it gets it's getting cancelled right. so yep. you know we're, we're still few and far between but then the lgbtq media needs to lift our voices up when you see all these you know lgbtq lists you may have a hundred people and one asian person mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yep and i think could you not have found one more than one so, right. And I agree. And here's, so here's where I'm going to step into where I feel like another sector within that is, and this is me on my own soapbox about my own standing. Everything is geared towards the young LGBTQ person. There's very few references, storylines, attention paid to the person in midlife who's coming out of the closet and going through that journey too. It's always about the young. Well, there's a huge amount of our population and, and there's several Asian people I know I've had these conversations with who they came out at 40, 45, 50 years old. But unless you happen to be, you know, Oprah's best friend or something. And, you know, there's a recent guy who wrote a book, which is really good. You don't get that recognition. I think this is the place where in our own way, and you know, I may, some of you listeners may not like what I'm about to say, and that's okay. This is just the difference of opinions. There's almost like, here's the standard LGBTQ storyline. Anything that's kind of off kilter from that, 
we don't really want to pay attention to because we want to pay attention to the pretty people. We want to pay attention mm -hmm. to the typical, you know, lesbian, you know, look, feel the bull dykes, whatever. We, we, we want to recognize the, the typical stereotype, but there's so much other space that the LGBTQ person falls into. And we haven't even talked about the gender fluid and all that sort of stuff that exists too. So as you're working through this and coming from your own experiences, and I know you bring those in when you're speaking, how do you feel like we, and I'm talking to everybody listening to this myself as well, how do you feel like we can bring, you know, you're being an orphan and then going through the bullying and everything, how can you bring that forward even more so to have impact. And I know the storytelling is a big piece of what you do, but where do you feel like you really make the connections with companies and out there in the advocacy world that makes people really take notice? You know, I do a lot of work with companies and governments around equality, particularly looking through the lens of sports, but also looking through the Asian lens. And you're right, because, you know, when I think of the Asian community, because we struggle so deeply with our sexuality or our gender identity because of our culture, mm -hmm. we tend to come out later yep. in life, yep. which obviously presents problems because there are no story lines for if you're coming out kind of literally right. <laughs> 30 plus and if you know coming out 40 plus you know there's no hope in terms of finding anything for you and where I'm making the greatest impact is through telling my story mm -hmm. as an adult particularly in business because companies really struggle with their Asian staff in terms of how to engage them, how to support them, how to be better allies, how to engage them to become part of pride networks, mm -hmm. because we never hear our story and that journey that we took from coming out, finding ourselves, accepting ourselves, and then going into adulthood. And I find that with so many companies that I've spoken to, after hearing my story, you know, their Asian staff come out or people become allies because for the first time they heard their story. It's because it's the story. I mean, the more these stories get told, I, I mean, I remember as I was finally, you know, when I finally came out, I, so I came out at 19. Most people who've listened to the podcast know that I came out, then I went back in the closet. But as the moment came at 36 years old, when I'm like, okay, this is going to happen. I literally believed I was the weird kid on the block, nobody else had been married. Nobody else had had kids. I, I mean, I knew intuitively that wasn't a hundred percent true, but in my mind, I knew I was really, really, really a small piece of the population until I came out. And then suddenly I'm like, Oh my God, there's people just like me everywhere. There were guys everywhere who had kids. There were guys everywhere who waited till later in life. There were women. And suddenly I'm like, why isn't this being talked about? You know, it's a very similar phase to what you talk about in the Asian culture. And as you were talking about in the workplace, one of the things that came up for me is this inability for organizations, corporate or otherwise, to embrace any of us, but to, especially when you get to this next layer of minority of Asian LGBTQ in the workplace and help them really feel welcome. It's an extension of the bullying you've already experienced. Mm. This is a constant extension of, and it may, it's almost like 
it's probably not quote intentional, but it's a piece of you don't exist. So we see you, but you're the way you show up doesn't exist in our mind. It's just another version of bullying to me because people won't open their minds. They won't ask the questions. And so suddenly I feel like I'm not loved. I'm not cared about. I'm getting hurt. And then the cycle just continues. And I feel like that's probably why you've had so much impact because of your own bullying experiences. Has there, is there a, I know I, we could go on for this for hours, but is there a piece of you tying the bullying in that really helps an organization see that this is key, that they start to open up and have the conversations? I think, you know, with the, the bullying, it's, it's, the, it's the journey that I take mm-hmm. companies on. And with that, the isolation and the loneliness that Asian people feel and how they suffer in silence. And then it makes them start thinking about, you know, their Asian colleagues, their Asian friends of, you know, that person of, oh, he's always so quiet, never says Mm -hmm. anything. And also reminding people that Asian people live within two different worlds, unlike other communities is, you know, we are, many of us are immigrants, even, even if we grew up in that country, we're descendants of immigrants, but we still have very close ties of being Asian. And I think, you know, the one thing that makes the greatest impact for our community, it's not about coming out, it's about coming home. As soon as we're born, what are we doing for the family in terms of, you know, how hard we're studying, the university that we're going to, the job that we're going to take. And that's why you see us continually in, you know, engineering, medicine, finance, city, jobs, because at the end of the day, it's what are you going to do for the family mm-hmm. and make sure it's not shameful, doesn't cause f- failure. We, we always want to say nice things about you to our community and, you know, how you're going to support us in old age. And also we need grandchildren as, yeah. as, as well. So, right. you know, it's, it's all about conforming mm-hmm. and then if you're LGBTQ, that's not all about conforming. It's something yep. completely di- different when we're not fitting into that box. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, that obviously is always the key with many of us in the LGBTQ community is we don't suddenly, we, the moment we declare that we don't fit in the box, we don't fit in the checkbox of heteronormative. And then you start to add the other pieces. Checkbox, Rick is gay. Oh, wow, Rick is also midlife gay. Oh, that's a different box there. Oh, my gosh, Rick has kids and he's been married. Oh, wow, that's a different box there. Now here's Amazon, who is Asian, an athlete. <laughs> you know, she's been homeless. She's re- All of this stuff starts to stack up. And as you said, I love that quote about it's not about coming out. It's about coming home. It's what you bring home to your family that's where so much of the issues show up for all of us but i know from working having worked with clients i've had several asian clients guys that are 35 35 to early 40s where this is their big struggle they're totally happy being who they are but they have still to have the conversation with the family and you know Coming from those cultures, in fact, um, one of my clients was Vietnamese, and this is one of the things that we talked about a lot. He goes, I'm the oldest son, and I moved away. He was living in um, 
Canada. And then he, now he lives in the LA area and he goes at 38 years old, the expectations of who I am are still so heavy on me. And this is the reason I have yet to like have this conversation because I know the moment I have that conversation, I'm already quote a disappointment, so to speak, because at 38 years old, I'm still not married. I haven't produced children, da, 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 da. It will just cause this to like quadruple in how much disappointment I am. Mm. And I don't know that people, so kind of back to, you know, what a gay Asian man should be like. I don't think people understand who look from the outside in on any of you in the Asian community, how prevalent this piece of family disappointment is. Yes. It's so it's, huge. It, it's huge. And we're, we're, regardless of how old we are in life, we're constantly connected to family. And I think watching Bling Empire, mm -hmm. that reality TV show on Netflix, proves it perfectly where you see the adults talking about shame and failure mm -hmm. and you know, the importance of having a son. And, you know, one of the men, he's a, you know, he must be in his fifties and a surgeon and still doesn't want to disappoint his family and still asking for them for permission about certain things. And I think other communities don't think like that and they don't understand how that's so connected. It's so inherent and so ingrained within our community that being LGBTQ is the biggest disappointment, shame, and failure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and those of you who are listening going, yes, but that's what happens in my own family too. Okay, we hear you. Mm. Uh, but until you've stood in those, and I've had these same conversations with people in the Black community. They're like, until, until you see how tight family is, you know, that everything revolves around family. I don't think you can relate. Now, I know I was a disappointment to my parents, but it wasn't like they're like, but but this is going to impact how you take care of me. And this is how, you, how you're going to carry on the family legacy. And, and, and I realized, okay, quote unquote, I kind of carried on the family name, except, you know, my family name, at least in my family is going to die with my kids because my daughters are quote women. So the patriarch's going to win again. They're going to, you know, quote unquote, supposedly take on their husband's name, whatever. But I, I it's not anywhere similar to what you're describing here. It's always been Asian culture is very family centric. Black culture is very family centric. There's these cultural places where I don't think any white person can understand it. You may have your version of it, but I don't think it goes as deep for the most part. Yes. I know there's some of you listening that like, Oh no, my family is totally family. Da, 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 da. Okay. I get that. But I just, I want people to recognize this is one of the key differences. And until you can dial into that, and I don't think anybody can completely understand it, but until you dial into it and begin to like help me continue to understand, I don't think we can make the shifts in the world that we need to make for the Asian and the Black communities. I just no. don't think we can do this. And even between the Asian and Black community, there's a, a huge difference. difference. I mean, yeah. I mean, the Asian community, we have one of the highest suicide rates in, yep. in the world. And that's because of the failure, shame and disappointment mm -hmm. that we feel that we've done to our parents. So we go mm -hmm. and commit suicide. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's <laughs> interesting. No, but it's you're so spot on. And actually, as you were saying that there's a new show on. I believe it's on Netflix called Kim Convenience and it's about a Korean family yes. in yeah. Toronto or somewhere. And it's really good. Again, it's really good, but it has 
it really doesn't have anything to do about the LGBTQ community, but everything we've just talked about is so present in the storylines because it's about the father being the voice and, you know, the expectations and, you know, the, the, you know, I don't want to give it away too much if nobody's watched it because it's just, it's really good. It shows the culture piece of this whole existence and how those dominating pieces are ever present in this family dynamic of this, you know, this show. And I, I would encourage anybody, especially after you've listened to this, to go watch a couple episodes and you'll, you'll totally get what Amazing and I are talking about because it's just very, very present. You can see it. So as we get ready to wrap up here, Amazing, what is one thing that you feel like you have not yet accomplished and you've done so much, but you have not yet accomplished in your amazing work that you would like to say, if I could just, if I could just do this, I would feel like, yes, I've taken that next level to really having the impact in the world. I know that's a big question. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm actually in the process of doing my 20 year life plan. <laughs> I remember when somebody asked me that and it was, I, I kind of like sat I, and it was on a podcast too. I kind of like sat there going, fuck, I wasn't, wasn't expecting that one <laughs> until I realized the day that I don't have to ever coach somebody out of the closet again will be the day that I know I've done my work. Because if I don't ever have to do it again and, and there's acceptance, it will be a really beautiful day. Even though I don't, I, I know I, well, I, I don't believe in my lifetime I might see it. I mean, I'm 57, so God willing, I live another 20, 30 years and maybe so, but that would be to me, if I don't ever have to do this work again, that would be a beautiful day. So that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that for, for me, there are two things and it's interesting that you say that because when I think of all the advocacy work that I do, I do it because I still see the same cycle of when yep. I was a kid, things, yep. you know, being the same. And I think I want a day when I'm not needed, where I can fire mm -hmm. myself because, you know, I, I don't see 1% anymore. You know, when I watch TV shows, I, I see a good mix of, you know, my, my, myself. When I look at sport, you know, there will not be a time when it's only one Asian person coming out onto the, mm -hmm. the field. You know, when I walk into companies, I want to get to that point where I can walk into a pride network and see so many Asian people just being themselves and showing up as who they are without that struggle and Asian parents embracing their LGBTQ kids. Mm -hmm. When I think of PFLAG, um, the only chapter that branched out from PFLAG is the Asian P American PFLAG network. Yep. Yep. And it was kind of for me the first time that I had met Asian parents mm -hmm. that supported their kids. And I think I want that to be everywhere in the world and then you know next year i'm looking at setting up an academy to support lgbtq youth mm. homelessness and you know it's going to be the first type of academy in the us and i for me that's my legacy that when i get yep. to the end of my life i think i was a big part of ending lgbtq youth homelessness mm. and ending that cycle that's a beautiful beautiful goal love it and you just it's so interesting as we're wrapping up you just brought up two really big 
big, big, big things. One, you're so realistic in what you just said that this isn't this isn't just going to take advocacy. This is gonna this is gonna take a shift in in Asian parental culture too. But that's where advocacy shows up. You know, just you're referencing the P flag Asian breakoff, and I remember I went to a couple of their um, meetings in LA. It was so powerful because it's a totally different world. You know, it's such a different world. And the second thing that you brought up was this piece of how many homeless LGBTQ youth there are. When people hear the numbers of, oh, you know, teens on the streets and everything. And I've witnessed this firsthand because I, I sat on the board of directors for a at-risk youth home in Southern California. When people hear those things, most people go, oh, yeah, those poor white kids. <laughs> they don't get it. They don't. They just don't get it that this is not just a white kid problem. This is a multicultural problem. And actually, the Asian and the black kids are out there on the street more than anybody. Yes, especially Asian. in the L, especially in the LGBTQ space. Yeah, and the Latino, Latinx yes. kids, and they're the most marginalized. And when you go to the shelter, you see many, I mean, majority of the black yep. and Latinx and then yep. Asian and, yep. and white. So it's not poor, white, rich kids. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In <laughs> fact, I would say, and again, there's nothing that I can base this on per se, but I'm sure there's statistics out there. But having worked in that world or sat on the board of directors, I think most white kids who end up out on the street can find a way to find somewhere to go just because of the color of their skin. Mm. It's this like, almost like this interesting concept of, well, you're not as desperate as the other ones. So maybe we'll bring you in, you know, and I'm not talking about the shelters. I'm just thinking people in general. I mean, if I saw a young youth out on the street and I've seen done this many, many times that I haven't let color of skin stop me. I have pulled over my car and said, you look like you need some help. You know, is there something I can do? Is there somewhere I can get you, you know, but I've had other friends say, Oh yeah, I picked up this and literally said, yeah, I picked up this young white kid. I'm like, why did you have to qualify? <laughs> what you're afraid of a black kid or a Latinx or an Asian, you know, I don't, I don't get it, you know, but, but that's where we are in the world. So, um, Anyway, so tell everybody where they can find out more about you. I want to get this plug in. And I love the, the fact that you're thinking about this youth um, program and an academy that's just absolutely wonderful. But um, give a shout out to yourself here before we wrap everything up. Sure. People can find out about me on AmazonLetty.com and on all social media at mm -hmm. AmazonLetty. Make sure you get Amazon Letty. I always kind of struggle over it. I mean, when I've worked with Amazon, I've always said, you're amazing because she is amazing. So I'm just going <laughs> to say that. But Amazon Letty, it's taken me all this time to get into this podcast to really get it. But I love what you're doing. Make sure you check her out. She's got amazing stuff on her website. There's just beautiful ways if you're out there in the world and you think she'd be someone that could influence your company, your organization, represent your group of people that could use to hear this voice, please reach out to her. Yes, I'm doing a shameless plug that I think she needs to get hired more for speaking, but that's because I'm working with her in that world too. But I'm so glad that our paths have crossed um, and that I got to have this conversation with you. 
Thank you for having me today. It was a pleasure. Hey, 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 Life Uncloseted family. Another episode of Life Uncloseted has come to an end and it is time for all of us to sashay away and go face our fears, make those bold moves and stand up to living our life without apology. But before you do, I've got a favor to ask of you. Would you hop over to iTunes or Spotify or Podbean or wherever it is that you're listening to this and just give us a little bit of love if you like what we're doing here at Life Uncloseted. Here's what it does. It helps other people find the show. It helps other people get to know what we're all about. And you just might help change your life. In fact, if you really want to change your life, we'd love it if you just ask a friend to take a listen and see what they think. So that's it. Love you all deeply. I'm Rick Clemens, the host of Life Uncloseted. And never stop stepping out, stepping up, and stepping in to living your life uncloseted.